Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now at Copenhagen, receive $200 off any stressless seating or $400 off stressless Mayfair chair and ottoman when you donate $50 to one of our local charities. For more ways to save, visit our showroom on Breaker Lane or go to copenhagenliving.com. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the podcast about the people, places, and things we love about Austin. Our podcast is from the feature staff, the Austin American Statesman, and we are sponsored by Copenhagen Furniture. It is Halloween, also known as the spooky season, and the time when a cinephile's fancy turns to blood and guts and gore. So what better person with whom to discuss horror movies than Lars Nilsson, chief programmer for the Austin Film Society? My name is Joe Gross, and I write about film and culture for the Statesman, and here is our conversation, which took place in an empty screening room at the AFS Cinema in the middle of the day. As it turns out, that is a pretty creepy place. Enjoy! Are you a horror guy? You know, I always have been from the time I'm a kid. I was a kid, um... And it wasn't so much even that I liked watching horror films because they were sort of hard to come by. Um, you and I are probably around the same age, but I, my family didn't have a VCR until I was in my teens. So we sort of did rely on, um, like I relied on uh, uh, Five Out of Washington, WTTG, and the oh. Superstation, and the Superstation TBS out of Atlanta, because uh, NWOR Superstation out of New York, because they would run, they were still running a package of horror movies into the night, or a package of movies into the night, and sometimes you'd have horror movies. And so occasionally I'd be able to stay up till three in the morning and watch something something probably deeply unsatisfying like the Spencer Tracy, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I would try to stay up and watch those horror movies. Um, And it sort of had this sort of corollary for me with the books about horror movies, because if there was a book about horror movies, I needed it. I would get my parents to drive me to bookstores in adjoining towns just to like look at the section that might have horror movie books because I was so obsessed with books about horror movies. And then I would look at the stills, you know, in those books about horror movies and those would almost be like the whole movie for me. The whole movie would play out just from those stills. Stills that I would just know by heart. I would just stare at the stills and the movie would come to life in my head. So, you know, a thing ended up happening once I had access to a VCR and I was able to go see all these horror movies. I was kind of like, it's not as good as the movie I made in my head. Yeah. Um, So, I have gone through these sort of various cycles of loving horror movies, becoming disenchanted with horror movies. Um, 
knowing so much about how movies work, I would say, as, as you do too, I'm sure, that horror movies sometimes sort of lose some of their luster for me because I know how all the effects are happening. And then you also sort of know how Hollywood stories work and you know what's going to happen and nothing really surprises you and you're not really scared by them. So all of these things are sort of added up to create different sort of cycles of disenchantment with horror movies for me. Yeah, totally. And then, but then I, I, so I'll watch one that makes me love horror movies all over again. Um, so I, I am falling in and out of love with horror movies my whole life, but it's not just falling in and out of like it really is truly falling out of in and out of love with them mm-hmm. because every time it comes back it's like this whirlwind you know affair with horror movies that i have what is it that you think is so re- like you 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 described in a way that you have a relationship with this genre that you don't necessarily have with romantic comedies or science fiction or noir uh what is it about horror films that you think resonates with people and this is a question i've asked Mm -hmm. people like max and people like kayla Mm -hmm. and you know who are you know pretty serious uh horror uh nerds and scholars and um and i'm curious what your thought is about what is it about that that genre that that just sort of takes hold of you and that you have this long-term relationship with i i think that that's one of the great sort of mysteries of my life. It's probably the great mystery. I'm I'm going to guess that nobody's given you a super satisfactory answer, but probably a lot of the answers have been about how these are movies about death and sex. Sex, I think, is a really underrated aspect of horror movies for people. Uh, sex and death, and these are sort of great mysteries, and we're, these are mysteries we're always sort of contending with, and we contend with them in different ways uh, throughout different periods of our life. So when we're teenagers, we're content. The death is practically just a non-existent consideration for us. Right. Um, uh, and but then sex is a real emerging consideration for us. Yeah, totally. And all of these things are kind of going together. Um, and then as we go through life, you know, probably by the time I'm 80 years old, sex is going to be a non-existent consideration for me. I hope not, but possibly. And by the time, but death will be an enormously important consideration for me. Um, and so I think that this sort of these sort of feuding um, life, these poles of life, these sort of um, the. Um, the different end zones of life, if you will, yeah, totally. so sort of like, and we're, we're variously in sort of different places on the field throughout our lives, but they're always so important to us. And it's the world that horror movies is really, horror movies really operate in mm-hmm. is that, is that field of play. Yeah. Was there a breakthrough film for you that you thought, Oh, this is something that I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life, or at least, you know, I'm going to continue to engage with. Uh, I don't know that it, it was a film that I thought that uh, I'm going to think about this for the rest of my life. But I, I think when I was a kid, um, watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein uh-huh. was, was a real big one for me. Um, I've heard that a million times from other horror movie people as well, like that particular movie. Interesting. Um, because it's um, I, I had seen Abbott and Costello on TV. And like I said, again, with the superstations, nobody knows what the hell we're talking about when we talk about superstations. Right, but right. on the superstations, um you, they would show a lot of Abbott and Costello films and they would show like Blondie films and they would show like Three Stooges and so I, I came to love that Saturday comedy post cartoons that's yeah, when yeah. those got when those got dragged out comedy was like you know co- comedy led me to Abbott and Costello and Abbott and Costello led me to horror movies because they have a movie if you haven't seen it Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein um, it is uh, it's Abbott and Costello being very funny 
well, mostly Costello, being very funny. Um, and and then Dracula um, and the Frankenstein monster show up. And the, uh, does the Wolfman show up in it? No, it's just Dracula and Frankenstein monster, right? Or does the Wolfman show up in it? I yeah, don't, I don't remember. I can't remember either. It's getting it's, it's getting it's getting mixed up with House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Um, <laughs> but at any rate. It, and they're really scary. So it's a really funny comedy, but then it's also really scary because you have these monsters. And that was sort of like, that led me into horror movies to, that began my sort of obsession with wanting to see the original Universal horror movies, getting into all the books. Um, but then later on, speaking of sex, um, watching um, Dracula, Dracula's Risen from the Grave on oh. TBS. That was one where I was like, whoa, there's a whole sex element to this that I'm really interested in. That's not one of the Hammer ones. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Because those Hammer movies, I mean, people talk about all the different sort of aspects of the Hammer movies. And you had Christopher Lee and, you know, Peter Cushing was in a lot of those. And, um, and it had somewhat more explicit blood than you would see in other movies. And it was in this bright color. Yeah. But it also had like... Uh, um, the women wore very low-cut dresses. They wore a lot of makeup. And it was a real sort of uh, sex response yeah. that I had as, like, a, I don't know, an 11-year-old or 12-year-old. It was just like, wow. whatever <laughs> this is the, awesome. <laughs> whatever this is, I'm really into this. Because it had horror <laughs> movies, and it also had, like, this sort of emerging aspect yeah. that I was really interested in, which was sex. So um, this is, a, this is an, um, uh, a statesman podcast. I hope it's okay to talk you're, about you're this. Fine. Yeah, All right, you're okay. fine. You're fine. You're <laughs> fine. Um, so what are some of your what are some of your favorites? You know, um, I realized it was going to be a fool's errand when I first heard that you wanted to talk about maybe my five favorite, something along those lines. So I, I started sketching it out and I tried to like have full coverage of like, oh, I want to have a universal horror movie in there. And then I want to move on to have, you know, you got to have a Val Luton horror movie and then you got to have a Hammer movie. So all of these things, I just kind of ended up throwing it out the window and yeah, just being totally. the films that like I feel like now – um, that I would rewatch, you know, Perfect. and that I would encourage for other people to rewatch. And so the first one that I want to talk about is um, Cat People from 1942. This is the one that's produced by Val Luton, directed by Jacques Turner, and uh, written by Duet Bodine. Um, this is a this is um, and it's a movie that really broke with sort of the earlier horror movies because when you look at the earlier horror movies and the Universal horror movies. And even the horror movies that some of the other studios were sort of making occasionally, um, you did not have – these were not movies that were really directed at smart adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cat People is not highbrow exactly, but it is pitched along the same way that like smart pulp fiction was. Totally. That was, that was being directed at grown-ups who were smart, who read books, and who had a, you know, a pretty good grounding on what's going on. So Cat People is that. It is not, um, I think, most of the original Universal movies, except for like Bride of Frankenstein and the original Frankenstein, most of those are kind of kids' movies. And The Mummy, I think, is not really a kids' movie. Most of those are kind of kids' movies, really. And I hope I don't get in trouble with any horror fans for saying that, but they really are. There's not a whole lot there. A lot of the performances are really weak yeah, in those movies. Yeah, throwing it in. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the leads, you know. I mean, obviously, um, but but yeah, like the even supporting performances are, are not great. Cat People just goes completely in a different direction. It's a really smart movie, um, and 
it has this, it's about sexual repression. There you go with sex again. Sex, death. Um, actually, have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah. Um, there's, there's a whole interesting prologue that was supposed to be in the movie. This is not a spoiler for anybody that hasn't seen it because this is not in the movie at all. But this is, the, the movie was supposed to start with a whole prologue in Europe, mm-hmm. in, in Eastern Europe or, you know, sure. the Balkans or wherever. The, Hollywood Europe. Wherever Simone Simone's uh, character is supposed to be from. Uh, and it's during um, the time of the Nazis beginning to sweep in and occupy the area. Mm-hmm. And we see the Nazis marching into this village in Eastern Europe. And the people there are like, what are we going to do? The Nazis are here. But then it turns out that it's this ancient strain where these people can turn into like these, you know, evil cat monsters or these yeah. dangerous cat monsters. And at the beginning, we see these cat monsters like slaughtering the Nazis. Awesome. <laughs> and then Simone Simone's character goes to America. And so we have that whole prologue and we know that she's one of these people with this ancient strain where they can turn into cats. Mm. And then we see the whole thing where she begins to fall in love. She's scared to fall in love because the passions that she might, you know, find during the sexual act would make her turn into a cat and kill the person she loves. Mm. So that's what the movie's about. Um, it would be incredible with that prologue, right? Yeah. I mean, it's already great. Yeah. Um, but the movie is um, Val Luton, who was the producer of these films, who had taken over this RKO uh, B-movie unit and was given the task of making um, B-horror movies. He believed that the public deserved good stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that you didn't have to sort of pitch your product down to the public. You could pitch it, you know, laterally to the public and the public was ready to receive it. And um, uh, commercially it paid off because I think, uh, I think cat people ended up being making something like uh, 150 times its budget back at the box office. It ended wow. up being an enormous, enormous hit. So, um, and of course he was able to produce, you know, five or six other really, truly great horror movies. And Jacques Turner directed it. But one thing I think that when you watch Cat People now that you see is you see the beginnings of the horror set pieces mm. um, and even the beginnings of jump scares, um, which I think became a, a really important part of the way horror movies sort of work on us yeah. as they startle us. Um, and I think that some of the most effective horror movies that we ever have um, are not just movies that sort of create an atmosphere and not just movies that startle us with something that, you know, comes around the corner or is lurking behind the door and pops out at us. It's when you have both of those things. And when you can put both of those things together, an, uh, an atmosphere of um, sort of abiding, sort of creeping terror, and then you have jump scares within that, that is truly the great recipe for making a good horror movie. And this has that because it's building this sort of atmosphere throughout and it's psychological as well. Um, but then you have a couple of these horror set pieces like the set piece in the swimming pool or like when Jane Randolph's walking down the street and you know something happens that I won't share what it is but um, these set pieces sort of um, are I think influential on you can see the influence on giallos which are just set pieces with like little pieces that run together between the set pieces interstitial stuff cartilage Um, and so you see that with cat people and I think that that's what cat people um, it's still effective and it'll still scare people. I mean, it's hard for people to believe that a movie from 1942 could make people sort of jump out of their seats, but it really still will. And it really still works. And you can watch it like a real horror movie. You don't have to just sort of watch, like I think some people watch horror movies where the needle's not going that deep into the groove. They're just kind of watching it and like waiting for something to happen. You can actually watch it as a story. It's not great 
writing. It's not great art, but it's it's really good pulp art. It's something I always admired about that film is its efficiency. Uh, that should be taught in schools in terms of storytelling. That movie is seventy nine minutes long. It's it's barely a movie by contemporary standards, but it is you know a complete piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just always you know in an in an era where most blockbusters run like two hours and twenty minutes. And that's what audience ex- is, audiences sort of are increasingly expecting. Cat people, you sit down and he just sort of like knocks out this amazing story in, you know, less time than the first half of a baseball game. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. And the uh, the acting's not great throughout in the movie. So, but it the, I think there's something about that that allows you to sort of understand that the means that it it was not a film with incredible means, you no, know, that it was all. a cheap film because you, you, you could look at it and the, the the quality of the production values that they bring to that very cheap film is kind of amazing. And you're like, yeah, no, producer did that, director did that. It's all, they really did a job of work on this movie. Totally. So that's definitely one of them. And, and then I would skip ahead for my next film that I would talk about because I, there's, you know... It, it's. I'm st- skipping way ahead. I'm skipping 30 years ahead, and this is the absolute wrong way to do this. But um, it's Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, and mm-hmm. I'm including this. I, I realize how unusual it would seem to see like these films in print and to see Vampiros Lesbos included on that, um, and not to do a different erotic horror film like uh, Daughters of Darkness or one of the genre land films to, to show to put Vampiros Lesbos on this list instead of those. I think is a real statement and is intentional, mm. um, but it is I think the, maybe the most sort of perfect. Um, boiling down of the horror film as erotic fetish uh, that I've seen. Um, It's like it has comic book colors to it. It has this incredible central lead performance from the really mysterious actress Soledad Miranda who died shortly after the film was made, who in fact was dead by the time the film hit theaters. Wow. Um, And there's all kinds of just really interesting and unusual aspects to this film. It's filmed in Istanbul. It has uh, this real sort of Near East exotica to it. Um, it has the greatest original rock soundtrack that I can think of for any movie, like in terms of original music. It's yeah. really amazing. It's something else. Um, and, and the film just, in the colors and the photography and the, and the art design, and this is an incredibly cheap movie. I mean, <laughs> really cheap, but, um, but it's really effective. Um, is it scary? You know, I don't know. Um, but does it reach that sort of place that it feels like, um, like the most awesome bad dream, the most awesome nightmare you can ever imagine having. Mm. Um, in fact, a, a nightmare that if you could script your own nightmares, you know, and you were just Franco, that you might make this nightmare. <laughs> it really has that sort of feel to it, where it feels like um, a Vampirella comic. It feels like a horror comic in that kind of way. The angles, the color, particularly when you see the Blu-ray of it, it's just a saturation of that color. Um, it's the it's the most red, beautiful blood you can imagine. And I don't know how many people that are listening to this would enjoy the film, but for me, it's certainly one that kind of gets at, um, it gets at the heart. Um, it peculiarly kind of gets at the heart of this aspect of horror films that I enjoy so much. It's almost like a platonic ideal of um, a sex horror film. Mm-hmm. What year was it? 71. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. so 71 is a great year of my birth. Great year. Um, 
Uh, and then moving forward to the next one that I wanted to explore is one from right here, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There we go. From 74. And what I like so much, of, I mean, there's a lot to say about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a lot has been said about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but um, it is almost a departure from horror movies entirely. It's an, It does not seem to really... Um, in my opinion, build on where horror movies had been going. And it almost always happens that you're building on horror movies. Totally. You're saying, well, I've seen... All, like, if you're making a horror movie now, it would be impossible to ignore the fact that Scream or whatever had ever happened, you know, right. like these milestone movies. You look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, like, what's the film that it's most similar to? It's hard to really even say. Yeah, in, it's in like it's come any, from space. Yeah, it's like it came from space. And Toby Hooper um, and Kim Henkel and Wayne Bell... They were making a, a symphony of horror, I think. And I think that that's the best way to describe it. It's what Murnau described as, you know, when he made Nosferatu, which is one that I could have put on this list. But um, he made Nosferatu, which is what, like 1919 or something? something like that, really yeah. old. He described it as a symphony of horror. And I think that you can see um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as, as a music concrete symphony of horror um, because it's really working on you. And, it, and truly working on you like the soundtrack works on your nerves it finds it's it's working on you it's going directly almost into your nervous system without inter, in, any intermediation yeah. from your brain it's it, just really working on extremely you. direct cinema yeah it really is and then the whole like the thing that i've come to sort of realize about this film in recent years is that it's about austin in this really important way it's about being in austin when everything around austin when we're in this island you know austin is this sort of island of you know maybe we're flattering ourselves we call it progress and enlightenment you know and i realize that sounds sort of snobbish but you know what i'm talking about there's a about. tremendous amount of evidence that supports that theory austin is this island yeah um and then all around this island is all of this um, really sort of regressive and reactionary, um, political-minded and sort of social-minded stuff. You know, this is oversimplifying, obviously. Sure. But we know this phenomenon. And when you get outside of Austin, and I've had this phenomenon ever since Trump got elected, I used to like to drive out into small-town Austin. I don't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, into small-town Texas. Yeah. I don't like it anymore. It freaks me out because I'm like, who are these people around here? I, I, I drive out in these old small towns, and I feel a little bit hostile. Well, a little bit of hostility, you know, in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, imagine how you felt in the early 70s, though. Like, imagine that hostility and how much sort of harsher it was because Austin, the, the sort of tiny community of sort of, you know, quote-unquote enlightened people, progressive people, was an even tinier community. And the area around it was an even sort of darker red, right. you know. And so, like, I think that sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a lot of ways is about sort of confronting this sort of, not only this sort of conservative mentality, but almost this sort of this sort of frontier um, mentality that was still sort of there and existing in Texas. Mm -hmm. and, you know, these people are, you know, they're killing animals and stringing the bones up and skinning and, and all Deeply of that. isolated. It feels, it feels real sort of luling, you know? Yeah. It feels real sort of like these little towns outside of Austin. Um, and, and like what I imagine how terrifying it would be. So I, I think that the movie is about this sort of cultural isolation in a lot of ways. But the filmmaking techniques are so unique. And I think um, Toby Hooper didn't really exactly know what the hell he was doing. And I think that that really sort of played into it. Yeah, that, that sometimes, it reminds me of, um, when you said that, it reminds me of 
you know, bands who were, you know, the Rolling Stones wanted to be a blues band, but mm -hmm. they didn't really have any idea how to do that. So they invented something completely different. And then you had these American garage rock bands that wanted to be the Stones, but didn't really know how to do that. So they ended up being something completely different. And I think there's something similar at play that like there's, you know, he wanted to make this very scary movie and sort of knew how, but yeah. not not didn't have the, a lot of the traditional grammar right, or right. grounding. Right. And so you have a movie that, you know, the first time you see it, you have these two sort of competing thoughts. This actually isn't as gory as I thought it was going to be, but it's also somehow scarier. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, there's violent stuff in that film, but this isn't Saul we're talking about. It's it takes place largely in your head um, at a few key moments, and yeah, that's a movie that just it's really it really does hold up multiple viewings in ways that many other films that I think it gets lumped in with uh, don't. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, and I would I would extend I'm, I would not include this as one of like my you know big picks here but the movie that he made after it um eaten alive is a movie that i don't know how many people have seen um but it's um it's sort of toby hooper with a little bit more budget like he's actually able to like cast you know day players um and and not exactly name stars but sort of name stars uh in um and have sets and like actually work on you know actual sets where you could build sets and break away walls and and all of that and uh it's pretty unique wayne bell came back and did the music again um which is really special the music in that film um and then th they made something i think that's really interesting uh that not too many people have watched not not even people who've watched it don't like it as much as i do but i really like it a lot i think it's a really creepy um, strange movie with a lot of atmosphere. It's, I, I wouldn't compare it to um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I think it's better than like The Fun House. You know, sure. I, I think it's like one of Toby Hooper's best films. Um, you know, depending on whether you, or not you think he directed Poltergeist, um, etc. <laughs> yeah, but that's it's a whole it's a real interesting um, a lot of real interesting circumstances. I look forward to the nine hundred page uh, you know book about the critical biography of Toby Hooper that I hope comes out someday. Awesome. What's your number four? <laughs> My number four film is uh, Dawn of the Dead. This is another really important movie in the progression of horror movies, to be sure. And I didn't choose Neither the Living Dead. I chose Dawn of the Dead. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a that was a choice they agoni I agonized nice. That was a choice that I agonized over for 35 seconds as I was making this list. Um, but it is the George Romero. It is George Romero's masterpiece, I think, and Tom Savini's masterpiece. And um, this is a movie that. Presumably you've seen this movie. Presum I would hope that people listening to this have seen it, but I've noticed that even talking to like a lot of the sort of young bloods on the horror scene, they haven't seen Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And that's shocking to me <laughs> because it is, it is so much like a, a blueprint 
for um, gore movies and for gore sequences, and it's yeah, you know, it's well made. They've he's, seen he's it good, without seeing it. <laughs> yeah, and he's a good filmmaker. You know, uh, Romero is a good filmmaker. Um, he knew what he was doing. Is you know, a filmmaker with a real sense of how to make films economically, how to edit for ma- maximum efficiency, how to direct actors, even. Um, in, uh, even like actors who haven't done much or don't have a lot of experience, he's a good uh, director of actors. Um, but this movie is really a showcase for Tom Savini's gore work. I mean, there's just a billion gore sequences. There's so many gore sequences that you can't even imagine how he got it all done. Um, and one thing that I think sort of brings it into like a cultural context, we've um, when we talk about Dawn of the Dead, we've possibly kind of chewed the bone a little too much talking about how it's about consumer culture and it takes place in a mall and i think i think that it's not a real um it's not a real deep reading to get that out of that movie to mm-hmm. say it's about consumer culture because it happens to take place in a mall and i you know it is it's a big overriding sort of cultural critique but um the thing that i think sort of um the sidecar to that reading of the film is the fact that Tom Savini was doing these gore effects that were inspired um, and informed by his time in Vietnam. And he said this, you know, he was like, yeah, that's what it looks like when a head's blown apart. Um, I saw it happen. Um, And that's what, that's how a gunshot affects, you you know, it's like really dark. Yeah. (laughs) It's terrifying. Yeah. To to know that not only you're looking at these effects, that it's not just make-believe. It's like, this is a guy pretty traumatized by his time in Vietnam, who just only a couple of years later, because Dawn of the Dead's 78, only a few years later is taking this and sort of translating that experience into this, which is also sort of riding alongside this critique of consumer culture, which arguably can't exist without you know war and death it is it is kind of extraordinary to think about how because i think a lot of people think that that is a 1980s film yeah because it was it ended up being so influential yeah sure on how you know horror posters looked how horror marketing worked how horror and let alone how horror films looked and the degree to which uh his work, uh, Savini's work, sort of leveled up how gore effects worked. I think a lot of people think it's like, oh yeah, that movie's from like 1982, and it's not. Yeah. It is a 1970s post-war, post-Vietnam film. Yeah. Um, as much as like The Deer Hunter is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, which is to say, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Yeah, I mean, and it was it was so influential, and, and we throughout, you know horror film history there are these game-changing films and you know i think texas chainsaw massacre is one of those it's interesting because texas chainsaw massacre and exorcist happening at virtually the same time is really interesting because you had two real game changers happening at just different levels of the industry you totally. know um and i didn't say the exorcist but obviously exorcist is really great i didn't say rosemary's baby rosemary's baby is really great these are all kind of game-changing movies that were happening really around this time where it's just a real sort of renaissance of horror movies um so yeah, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and then the last one that I wanted to discuss is one that I think sort of takes a couple of these sort of diffuse threads and kind of brings them back home. It sort of takes the movie-movie um, aspect of horror movies where it's just fun and it's a little silly uh, and that's okay. And it sort of brings them together with this sort of real visceral aspect where you have these um, horror set pieces and you have if not exactly gore effects, at least special effects um, being a huge part of it. And that movie's The Howling. Um, 
because it takes a lot of, it, it, it sort of resynthesizes in this sort of Hegelian way. Look it up. In this sort of Hegelian way, it sort of resynthesizes a lot of these threads that had kind of gone in different directions in horror movies and brings them all home into this really fun package. It's a pretty low-budget movie, but not that low-budget. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty low-budget movie. Um, John Sayles did a sizable rewrite of the script. You know, you see John Sayles' work all over Which is kind this. of hilarious to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is that John Sayles, who has done so much incredible work, um, you know, rewrote this movie. In a very different vein. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I, I almost kind of wish that... Um, we could split off the John Sayles and could have two different John Sayles and have the John Sayles who makes, you know, his great um, dramas, his independent dramas, you know, his Lone Stars and his um, um, his many other fine films that I'm not thinking of right now, Ron Heinisch and yeah. Eight Men Out and all this, and then also have, um, you know, his horror movie where Alligator, guy. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because uh, he was great at writing genre. I mean, he's great at writing anything. He's just great at writing genre. Gets it all the way. Yeah. Totally. And the, the Howling is one of those movies, and it has. It's Joe Dante directed it. It is so fun, and it is so um, just Joe Dante being a, a total horror fan who probably also like grew up on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I would guess. I'm sh- I'm certain he did because like he uses all kinds of in jokes from old horror movies yeah. in the Howling. Um, uh, Joe Dante really gets what makes horror movies work, but then he also um, was attuned enough to where horror movies were going to, you know, express um, this um, kind of new horror um, feeling through, like, the great transformation scene mm-hmm. in that film, and through other sort of intense sort of gore effects in that scene. But it's also, and you've got jump scares, and you've got real intense sound design in the film, um, but you've also got like, you know. Dick Miller and John Carradine running around. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. That's a good one in terms of it being the total package. Yeah, like here's here are all of the tones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That a horror movie can take. Yeah, because there. Yeah, there's humor and melodrama and gore and yeah, it is. It's very much a total package movie. And it, it, so it's it, it's kind of De Palma esque in ways too. So it, there's it's it really kind of bringing a lot of the threads together. And this D Wallace in the lead is just amazing. She's always so good. And I don't know if people like recognize how good D Wallace is. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great. She's just absolutely fantastic in whatever she's in. She has one great scene, which I won't spoil because I want everybody to go out and watch The Howling right away. But she has one great scene. I mean, she has a lot of great scenes. We has one really incredible scene in this movie that if there were. If there was like an Oscars for like horror movies or an unpretentious Oscar, then she would have been nominated just for on this scene alone. Lars, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, my great pleasure to talk about this stuff. I appreciate it. Always nice to see you. Good to see you too, man. That's our show. Thanks for listening and thanks to our sponsor, Copenhagen Furniture. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at LoveAustin360. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is a production of the feature staff, the Austin American Statesman. This episode was produced by Alyssa Vidalis. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find everything you'd ever want to know about this show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. If you want to pitch us an idea for the show or give us feedback, 
shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com. We couldn't do this without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your time you otherwise would have spent eating candy. Until next week, we'll see you turning into a large jungle cat. Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now at Copenhagen, receive $200 off any stressless seating or $400 off stressless Mayfair chair and ottoman when you donate $50 to one of our local charities. For more ways to save, visit our showroom on Breaker Lane or go to copenhagenliving.com. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.